one of the things about the soul and its portrayal is the belief in Christianity, in, in modern Christianity and in ancient Christianity that that surrounds that surrounds the soul. So what we're looking to consider tonight is that belief around around that teaching, and what we'd like to look at is how that there is a, a Christian teaching that um, the soul itself has some has some purpose, and we're going to have a look at how the teaching around that is is held by many churches, and in fact many branches of Christianity, and in fact even many branches of religion in general, that there is this some eternal undying aspect to uh, the human existence called a soul or, or, or some other word for it that, that lives on after the physical life comes to an end. So we're going to be having a look and exploring what the Bible has to say about that. So this concept of a soul is mentioned many times through popular Christianity, and it's also not even unique to Christianity. It's mentioned in many other religions with that aspect that I just mentioned of a continuing presence for a, for a person after after they die nearly all people and all aspects of religion accept the fact that eventually you will die but many of them also contain this added um part in them that there is something further after death and that that there's some something within ourselves that 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 continues on after death so we want to have a look at what the bible has to say about the soul of a man or the soul of a woman this evening so in looking at the idea of a soul, we could have a look at a few definitions. And so these definitions are from um, a couple of different online dictionaries. And this is just how the English language translates the word soul. So one of the translations that we have is that a soul could be referred to as a spiritual or immaterial part of a human being or an animal regarded as immortal. So that's a really commonly held belief in just in the English language that a soul could be from a human, for an animal, or and, and would generally be regarded as immortal. And that's important to recognize that the basis of the human language actually presupposes this level of immortality due to the Christian nature's Christian nature that of, of, of parts of the English language and how it developed. So some of our language that we use is actually has that imagery pre-built into it because it belongs to the language that we that we have, that many of us speak. Another definition is the immaterial essence emanating um, principally or actu- actuating cause of an individual life. So again, this this idea that there's some some essence, something within us, some something that's immaterial, something that's not necessarily able to be touched, not necessarily able to be seen, but but coming out of, of within us is this, um, this principle, something that animates us, something that makes us alive. It's something that dwells within us that, that causes us to actually have a life. Other uses of the word talk about some sort of emotional or intellectual energy or intensity. You know, you could do something soulfully. You could really put your, your heart and your soul into it. You've got this intensity. You've got this energy. You've got this sort of single focused commitment and mindset towards whatever it might be. And that's another way that the word soul is used, at least in English. We could use it as well to describe a a piece of art or an artistic performance in the same sort of way. 
that someone's put all this energy into it, all their heart and all their soul, all this, this, this essence of their being has gone into creating this particular artwork or this particular performance. And, and people really resonate with that sort of idea. And they, they see that and they, they can really, you know, they can feel it themselves. They can feel some sort of connection potentially with, with whatever it is that they're, whatever it is that they're viewing. Another couple of definitions are that there's this spiritual principle that's embedded in human beings. And a lot of these are similar as well, but they are slightly different takes on the same thing. So there's this really spiritual connection that people have with each other and especially with other human beings that there's this, there's this bond that we all have this, this idea of a soul, a shared, something shared that we all have. There's the concept of, you know, that it exists in all rational and spiritual beings. So if you're a rational being, and you consider yourself to be a rational and a spiritual being, then you have also this, this concept of a soul dwelling inside you. And another use is sort of the, the universe at large, like it's got that broader broader brush picture that the soul just encompasses so much that it could even be considered, you know, as, as far-reaching as the universe. So they're just a couple of examples of, of how the English language uses the word soul to portray several different ideas. And it's not uncommon in English that, several different ideas can be portrayed by the same word. And just as it's not uncommon in English, it's also not uncommon in other languages. And what we're going to be, well, that was the last one, the essence of embodiment of a specified quantity, quality. So as I was saying, it's not just in the English language that this um, is the case. What we're gonna to consider tonight is how the word soul is used in the Bible. Now, when we're talking about in the Bible, we're talking about a book written by um, various writers who all wrote this particular, this particular book under what's termed the inspiration of God. And the Bible actually explains what this inspiration means in verse Peter, and that's what we've got written on the screen. In 2 chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, we have, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy or scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the Bible is trying to say here is that it's a collection of books that is the word of God, and it, it claims to be the only authentic source of wisdom that's available to us. That's, what the, that's the Bible's claim. And tonight when we present, we're going to be talking about things from this book. And because we're saying that that's the claim of the Bible, we're also saying that this definition of soul and this way of interpreting soul is also God's definition of interpreting soul. And it's the definition that God supports. And it's what it's, it's the message that he's trying to convey throughout his Holy scriptures. What we would do you and I, if we were speaking to somebody about something is generally we're trying to put that conversation into context. So you might be having a conversation with um, someone mowing the lawn if they suddenly start talking about apple trees, it may not make a lot of sense, but if they're mowing a lawn around apple trees, it might make more sense. So we generally, when we talk to people, we try and put things into context and the Bible itself is no different. It tries to put things into context and it tries to give backstory and meaning to different elements inside the Bible. In the case of the concept of a soul, there's a couple of ways we can go about it. We can look at some of the English translations that translate the word soul or we can look back towards some of the original hebrew and some of the original greek and we can consult a a, a device called a concordance now i have a concordance next to me okay this is a concordance 
And the idea behind a concordance is it takes many, many people with very, very small hands to write very, very small letters on the page. No, that's not right. It takes English words and it takes Hebrew words and it takes Greek words and it tries to map those as closely as it can with people who know what they're doing, not necessarily people of religion, but scholars of the Greek and Hebrew language. It tries to take those words and map them into something that has meaning for us so that we can put some of these things into context. So what happens in this instance is that we can look up the English version of these words in Hebrew and Greek and get a sense of the meaning. In the Bible, the word soul itself, and we can find this in the concordance, is used 459 times. So it's not a word that's used very sparingly. It's a word that's used quite a lot. And we're going to see that there's a reason that it's used quite a lot. We're going to see that later. The Bible itself is broken into two main sections. There's a section at the start of the Bible that's written in Hebrew predominantly, and there's a section at the end that's written in Greek. Now, this is written by many different writers over many, many, many hundreds of years. And the enduring theme of the Bible is that it stays consistent amazingly throughout. So what it means is we can look at some of the first occurrences of this particular word soul in the Bible, and we can look at some of the last occurrences of the word soul in the Bible, and we'll find that it stays consistent. The usage stays consistent. The ideas that it conveys stays consistent. But what doesn't say consistent is the actual word itself. Just like we had many different interpretations of how soul work, the Bible itself uses the word soul and its base root words in the original language in several different ways. We're going to have a look at two of the main ways that it uses it now. In the Old Testament, an occurring, so the word soul occurs a certain amount of times, but the word that represents soul is nefesh. So this particular word, nefesh, actually occurs by itself 742 times, and there's about 42 different ways that it gets translated from its original Hebrew word, nefesh, into English. It so happens that 472 times the translators of the Bible who are translating from Hebrew, the original Hebrew texts, using their, their knowledge of, of how the Hebrew text was structured into English, 472 times they translated that word as soul. But it also happens that 119 times they translated it as life or living. They translate it 30 times as person, 15 times as mind, nine times as creature. So this particular word that we see written in English as soul gets translated many, many different times and has many variations of the same theme throughout the Bible. Okay, so that's an important point to remember. In the Old Testament, there's this consistent usage of the word nefesh in Hebrew, and that gets translated in several different ways. 472 of those happen to be the word soul. On the flip side to that, in the New Testament, we have the word, now I have to, I did write it down, suke, right? So that's the, that is the Greek equivalent, suke, okay? I, I did actually look it up and decide how to pronounce it. So that's just not me saying it, but it might be wrong as well. Okay, so when this one gets used, it appears 103 times in the New Testament of the Bible. It's the Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word, okay, nefesh this word suke in the Greek, 58 times it gets translated to soul, 40 times it gets translated as life, three times as mind, and two times as heart or heartily. Okay, so there's this idea that there's a translation of this word that we read in our Bible as soul in the Hebrew, nefesh, certain amount of times it gets translated to soul, and it gets translated as other things at other times. In the New Testament, we see that this word suke 
it gets translated a certain amount of times as well, but only 58 times it gets translated as soul, but it gets translated as, translated as life, as mind, as heart, okay, a number of times, about half those amount of times it doesn't get translated as soul. So we have this idea that there's this word that gets translated as different things, okay? But what, we can, what we're going to see is when it does get used through the Bible, we're going to see that it means a consistent, it has consistent messaging and consistent theming. And that is no different to how we use our words today. So the way that they use their words then and the way that we use our words now, it's the same. Different words can be said slightly different ways to have different meaning, but generally they mean very similar things. So how do we use the word soul today? All right, this is something that probably nearly all of us would know. Okay, the Morse code, or what is it? It's the Morse code for SOS, save our souls, right? It's something that's universally recognized. It's internationally recognized, maybe not universally, but nearly every country in the world uses the terminology SOS, save our souls, as a, as a way of communicating, especially early in the century, a way of communicating there was a problem, people were about to die, okay? But interestingly, it wasn't the first way of communicating that people are about to die over this new medium of radio. Originally, the code was CQ. If you wanted to use your wireless um, system that you had in the early 1900s to tell someone that you're in trouble, you transmitted the code CQ for Securite in French. Okay, there was something wrong with the security. There's a security problem. Okay, and it was the Marconi company that actually added a D to that. So they actually made the code CQD. So if, you were, if your ship was sinking or your train was running off the tracks, your wireless operator was frantically whacking on his Morse code, CQD, CQD, CQD. In fact, one of the most famous applications of, of, the, of the terminology CQD and SOS was actually the sinking of the Titanic. So in the sinking of the Titanic, this idea that there was all these souls on board, okay? There was all these thousands of people on board and the wireless operator was bashing out CQD. And his friend said to him, as they were both sinking, they said, how about you try SOS as well? That works as well. So he typed CQD, SOS, CQD, SOS, until, he, until the ship sunk. So this idea of saving our souls or there's souls in danger or there's potential for people to die, saving our souls, this isn't something that is even a foreign concept to English. A soul is equated to a person. Save these people who are drowning, save these people whose ship is sinking, and SOS, it means something very similar. When we talk about what the Bible defines a soul as, we can see that there's four main elements that the Bible defines, that use, the Bible uses a soul to try and convey. The first and the most important element that the Bible tries to convey using the word soul is that a soul is a breathing creature. Okay, so a soul in the Bible is a breathing creature. And that's a really, really important distinction to make. It's a creature that breathes. And we're going to see that a soul can be several different things, but it is a creature at its fundamental core. It is a creature that breathes. The second major concept is that it's a body that's capable of life. So a soul is not referred to in the Bible as something that is dead. Okay, it's something that's capable of life. Typically in the Bible, when the Bible is speaking about a soul, it's potentially a soul that is about to die or has died. It's something that is capable of life. It can be a man or a beast. The Bible uses it interchangeably for a man or a beast. And it also can refer to various aspects of the physical body. So different parts of the physical body are also referred to as soul throughout the Bible. 
So these four main points are very important when we think about how the Bible uses soul. And we always can come back to the first part of the, the most important point is that the Bible uses the word soul to define a breathing creature, something that breathes, something that has breath, something that breathes in and breathes out. It takes in oxygen, it expires something else. Okay, so a breathing creature is extremely important to the concept of a soul in the Bible. In fact, the Bible talks about the soul even having a life cycle or having, having a, a series of events that could potentially happen to it. A soul could, for example, be born, a soul can breathe, a soul can expire, a soul can die, a soul can go to the grave and a soul can be raised up again from the grave. Okay, so what, what do each one of those things mean? What does it mean for a soul to be born? Now, there's a quote here from the Bible from Genesis chapter 15. And what it says is, it says, all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Okay, so what it's talking about there is it's talking about there's a family in, in the story of the Bible where there's a group of people and that group of people moving around are referred to as souls, okay, as, as a collective. There's, there's multiple people all together and it's referred to as all of the souls. Now, we would, we would use that same terminology today. If there was a group of people sinking on a ship and they said, save our souls, they wouldn't just mean one soul, they would mean souls, lots of them. Okay, so multiple souls. Souls can be born. Again, using the same family as an example, we can see that there is a, a father in this case and he bears 16 souls to multiple wives. Okay, so each one of these people is born, breathes in, breathes out, has this, this concept of being a living creature and these all these people are the children of this particular man, Jacob. Okay. So all these people, again, there's 16 souls in this case. There's not just one soul, but there's 16 distinct individual living and breathing creatures in this case. Moving down our tree, we can see that souls, very importantly, breathe. Okay. In this case, there's a, there's a story of a, a, a famous battle in the Bible. And they, in this battle, they kill many people. It says they smote all the souls that were there with the edge of the sword. And very importantly, that when those people stopped breathing, they were dead. Okay. There was not left any to breathe. So the key, the key distinction here was that the souls were previously alive and they were breathing and then they were killed and they were not breathing anymore. So that's a really important distinction that in this case, we've got a soul, we've got people that were killed. They're no longer breathing. They're not souls anymore. They're dead. Souls can expire, okay? So like you might you might breathe in or you might breathe out, the idea of expiring in the Bible gets used several times when it's talking about a soul and it's talking about someone losing their life. They're sort of, they're breathing out, they're expiring, okay? They're losing their life. Once that breath goes out of them, their life is gone and their soul is no longer. They are dead. They're, they're dead. They're no longer a breathing creature. They have expired out and they are dead. Again, in the same concept of dying, a lot of this can is a bit, little bit morbid with death and dying, but it's very important to the concept of a soul is that there's a concept here of uh, later, in, later in the Bible, at the end, towards the end of the Bible, maintaining the consistency of the Bible throughout from the very start that we saw in Genesis in the last quote to this one in Revelation chapter 16, which is the very end of the Bible, we have the idea that there's, there's, a, there's an event where much of... All the things that are in the sea die. And every living, 
every living soul in the sea died. So we've got this concept of not only is it possible to be born as a soul and, be, and as a person, but even in the sea where the animals take in oxygen and, and expel as well, those, those animals in the sea are also called souls. And it was all the living souls in the sea died. Okay, so it's lots of them at once. It wasn't just one. And we've got this, we've got this introduction of an idea that there, an animal can have this concept of a soul as well. It's a creature that's breathing in and it's breathing out. It's got this breath of life. Got another idea that a soul can go to the grave. Okay, so we, we're familiar with the concept of a grave. The grave is the, the euphemism for we're dying and we're buried and we turn back to dust. Okay, in this case, the soul can go to the grave. The soul can go into the grave and the soul dies. Okay, once it stops breathing, the soul come. Once it stops being a breathing creature, the soul is, is destroyed. And again, and very importantly, is that it's possible for the soul to be raised from the grave. And we see that this is a really important concept in the Bible because it's an amazing element of a promise that God has given us that even though we may die and we may lose our souls, that there is a possibility to be raised again. And that's not necessarily what we're speaking tonight, but it definitely forms the core of, of, what, of what we believe that God has promised to us, that we as souls, as human beings, as living creatures, we breathe in, we breathe out, once we die and we cease to exist anymore and we become the same as any other dead animal, there is a possibility that we can be raised from the grave again. And that's part of the amazing promise that God has left for us in the Bible. Another couple of things are that souls can possess attributes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a soul can have several different attributes. And these are just four, for example, there's many more examples of what the soul can, can possess. If you think about an attribute, a physical attribute that you might have, a finger or a hand, there's often a, a quote in the Bible that speaks about a soul having this particular attribute. And it's not only um, humans that have these attributes. Animals also have blood. Animals oftentimes, unless you're a chicken, have lips. Okay. There's different, there's different elements to what a soul, with different attributes to what a soul might have. For example, a soul might have the element of flesh. Okay. So there's a, there's an idea that, the flesh is in the, the skin or the, the muscle tissue of an animal that, that people would eat. So a soul could eat something and it could also eat another soul. A soul could eat a soul. So a human could eat an animal. Okay. So that's a concept in the Bible that a, a soul can be, can be eaten. Okay. For example, a soul may or may not have hands. Okay. So a soul could, it talks about in this particular quote, it's talking about, a, a sin that a person potentially could commit against God's law. And it talks about a soul that could sin through ignorance. And then what it talks about is that this is linked to a person. So it says, let him bring for his sin that he hath done, you know, let his hand be upon someone. So this, this soul who's, 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 who's been in, engaged in this activity that God has decided he doesn't like commands that a sacrifice be made. And this soul puts his hand on something. Now, it's making the very clear inference that a soul can have an attribute of a hand. Okay. And there's also other attributes. If we look at the, the fourth one that we had there, a soul can have lips. Okay. So, or a soul can have blood, sorry. And, and humans obviously aren't the only creatures, breathing creatures on this earth to have blood. Many other animals. In fact, most of the other animals that I can think of have blood. Okay. So, the blood of this of this soul of this of this breathing creature is a critical attribute that it can also have. Finally, 
it's possible for a soul to have lips unless it's a chicken. Okay. A soul shall swear according with his lips to do good or evil. So this is talking about something that can speak with lips, potentially good or evil. Okay. And the idea is that it comes from him. So this soul um, has this attribute of lips. Now that's all well and good to have these different attributes, you know, that, that's nice. You've just described a few, a few different, few different things. Okay. What else? What else could a soul potentially have? You've got some attributes. Okay. Fingers, toes, potentially eyes, ears. Okay. What else can a soul have? Well, a soul can also have functions, which are a bit more abstract. A soul can have several different functions. Now, these aren't necessarily all things that um, different animals do, for example. They can, they could probably all be included in this, but generally these are terms that are, are used of humans. A soul, for example, can eat. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 2, it talks about, you know, a soul eating. You can eat, can eat part of a sacrifice, for example. So a soul could eat something. That's a living soul. If you're dead, you're not eating much. But if you're a living soul, you can eat something. A soul can also drink, okay? A soul can fast. You know, that's the absence of eating. So not only can a soul eat, the soul can not eat on purpose. A soul can faint, okay? A, a soul can become weary and tired and, you know, it can become so exhausted that it faints or could see some blood from another soul and faint, okay? So that's another attribute, of a function that a soul can have. And these, these are not, you know, pointing towards, you know, very immortal qualities or, or enduring qualities if someone is fainting. A soul can be torn, as in cut up or ripped apart, not something that we want to happen to us, but it's definitely possible for a soul to be torn. A soul can be slain or killed. A soul can have its head chopped off. A soul can be burnt. Okay, these are all um, really key elements in, in what a soul, what can happen to a soul. And the Bible talks about, many, many different ways that a soul can have functions over and above the simple aspect of being a human. These functions are things that humans or animals or, or other living creatures can potentially perform, okay? Not, not, not just limited to the very fact that they are a human or that they are breathing. So these, these ideas of, this idea of a soul also has an idea of something that can perform functions. Again, it's connected to that key idea that we looked at first of being a breathing creature Something that is a breathing creature and something that is alive can perform functions. Something that is dead cannot perform functions, which makes it a very, a very key distinction. In the Bible itself, it's really important to recognize that souls are not described as immortal. Okay, this idea of potentially that some religions have or, or even Christianity as, as a whole has that souls can be immortal and souls um, have some inner essence that survives after the, the physical body is dead is not something that is supported by what the Bible says. The Bible does not support the idea that, that there's some deathless state that is within the physical being. It doesn't support that idea. It definitely supports the idea that souls die naturally. And it definitely supports the idea that souls are actually liable to death. They're actually in a state where dying kicks in right away. So we all know our own ability to be killed at any moment. We could trip over a piece of Lego and hit our heads and we could be dead. We could fall out of the car and we could be dead. We know 
without being too morbid, that we have this propensity to die. We don't have a propensity to keep on living. And the Bible tries is trying to explain that this idea of a soul is very, very closely, in fact, inextricably linked to this idea that we are liable to die. We are, we are liable to death. This idea of being liable to death, of course, is supported by what the Bible says. This is a quote about a very famous um, general in the Bible called Joshua, who happened to lead the children of Israel in one of their, in one of their campaigns from, from Egypt up towards the land that they were promised. In fact, this is a very, very timely quote. Okay, It talks about putting feet upon necks. Okay, Now, that's very topical, putting feet upon necks. And it talks about people that have their foot put on their necks die and that they're utterly destroyed. And this is talking about some kings that were brought to Joshua and as a sign of submission and the fact that they were going to die, they put their foot on their necks and then they killed everyone. And the idea is that this, these souls were always liable to death, okay? There was, there was going to be death brought upon these particular souls and it talks about, in the last passage there, it talks about all the souls that were in there in, there was none that were going to remain and that everyone was utterly killed, okay? So this liability to death, you know, is a, is a key idea of a soul. Another key idea of being liable to death is the fact that it was possible to, you know, annoy somebody I use the word annoy loosely here, but to, to vex somebody or to, to, to get on them over and over again, that the soul of the person, the, the living, breathing creature was so, so overwrought with this that they, that they felt as though they were going to die. Okay. So this, this urging in fact is, is part of the story of Samson where Delilah in fact, you know, urges him so much to find his secret for his incredible strength that it says that his soul was vexed unto death. So this living, breathing creature was so upset and so frustrated by the constant badgering that, that he was receiving, he felt like dying, okay? It, it felt like he was going to die. It's not only, and this is an important point, it's not only humans, not only people that are referred to as having souls, okay? We can see that this, that the, with the word nefesh, in Hebrew, and also with the word suke in the Greek, this word, you know, creature or, or getting termed as a breathing creature is used throughout the Bible, and both animals and men are called living souls at some point. Okay, so it's not necessarily that it needs to be a person. It could be an animal that gets referred to as souls. For example, one of the reasons the Bible tries to get us to think about animals and humans being very, very similar to each other in the way that they are both souls and they're both liable to death is because it wants us, it's, it's one of the major themes of the Bible that, that human beings really need to come to the realisation that we're not so much different from the other breathing creatures on the earth that God's created. The main difference that we have that the Bible tries to share with us and the Bible tries to help us to realise and helps us to try and understand is that we have this, the main reason, the main difference that we have over just a, a beast in the field, a cow in the field, is that we have this superior mental way of thinking that should be different to them. Okay, so we have this ability to think and to reason, okay, that is different to what the animals have. We are created, the Bible says, in God's image. But when it comes to our nature, 
the, the soul that we have as in the breathing creature that we are, how we die is no different, no different at all to how the animals around us die. Okay. What this passage here from Ecclesiastes 3 is trying to tell us and what the writer is trying to tell us is that we need to realize that we have the same tendencies as a beast. We have the same tendency to eat. We have the same tendency to survive. We have the same tendency to look after ourselves. We have the same tendency to procreate like the beasts do. The idea that humans are somehow important or special is not supported by the Bible. It's not a Bible concept. It's not something that the Bible teaches. The, the, the thinking that humans are somehow very, very special is a result of, of humanistic teaching that's crept into to modern culture in the last few hundred years. But what the Bible is trying to teach us is that in this quote, it says that they might see themselves that they are beasts. So we need to recognize the fact that what we have in our soul as a living creature is no, is, is not really any, any much, any more special than that of a beast. It goes on to say they all have one breath. Okay. They all have one breath. Again, that concept of breathing in, of breathing out, man has no preeminence of other beasts. All is vanity. When we die, the same thing happens to us as what happens to a beast. We are all of dust and we turn into the dust again. That's what the Bible tries to teach. And that, that's what the Bible presents as the core concept of a soul. The soul of a human being, the soul of a person is the same soul that it speaks about as the soul of a beast. We all have one breath. We all breathe the same air. And when we die, we all go back to the dust of the ground again. Another quote that helps us to recognize the fact that we need to understand this fact that we are the same as the beast comes from Psalm chapter 39 verse 5. And what it says is that man at his very best state is altogether vanity. And now this is in direct contrast to the teaching of humanism where it talks about men being special and men being different. Okay. What God is saying is that at our very, very best, everything that we do is vanity. It doesn't matter. It can't compare. Okay. This is our very best state. And even in our very, very best state, like all living creatures, we're going to eventually die. And we're going to die in the same way that they do. Eventually, our breath will stop coming and we'll be dead. When the living creature, that's us, when the living creature dies, so does the soul. The soul and the living creature are the same thing. Okay. And now this is opposite to the teaching that the soul is immortal. Okay. What we're saying and what the Bible upholds as true is that the soul is prone to death in every way. It is not some deathless entity. It is not something within us that can't die or something that exists beyond our, own, our death. When we die, so does the soul. The soul is us. Okay? It is our physical breathing. We are the breathing creature. So it's very important to recognize the fact that souls go to and are delivered from the grave. Okay. Now, having said that, all souls are destined for the grave in the first instance. And the amazing part of the promise that we mentioned before is that we have this promise from God that under very special circumstances, we could be part of the fact that a soul that goes to the grave could be raised from the grave again. In this case, it's people, it's souls with his image. Okay, It's human beings made in the image of God with the, with the ability to to think in the same way that God can think. Okay. Not saying that we do think like that, but it's possible for our minds to function in a, in a very, very limited way like God's. 
And because of that, and because of the fact that we can recognize this fact that we are like beasts and that we need God to save us, it's possible for us to be raised out of the grave and go from a state of being breathless, having breathed out our last, for example. It's a common phrase that someone might have breathed out their last. They're dead. They're they're in in this stateless condition. We could be dead with no life at all, and we could become a breathing creature again we could we could come back to life now that's part of a special promise that god has for us that we will potentially looking at in another class in that concept of being raised from the grave the bible provides an example where this actually happened okay and this example is the example of the lord jesus christ now lord jesus christ was the son of god and he was actually the first person that this happened to And because of the life that he led and the way that he followed the commandments given by his father, he was raised up from the grave after he had died. Now, he had genuinely died. He breathed out his last and he was dead. But because of the characteristics that he showed in his life, he was able to be raised again and he was given back his breath. He was given back his life as like God had breathed into him. In fact, we saw very early in the piece that quote from 2 Peter where it was talking about all spirit is given by inspiration of God, that idea of being of breathing out, God breathing out this life force into people. And people having this force, these, these souls, they are breathing creatures, so they are alive. Again, in Psalm 16, we have the idea that the soul was not able to stay in, in hell. And in this case, the word hell simply means the grave. So again, this is another, this was actually preempting the raising of the Lord Jesus Christ back to life. But this this soul that Christ had that died because of the life that he lived, it wasn't able to stay in the grave. So it was raised up again. And it was something that was promised that would happen. Okay, So this idea of a soul being going to the grave and coming back from the grave again is throughout the Bible. And it's not just while the Lord Jesus Christ is on the earth. It also happens before as promises. And because it happened to him, we can also be sure that in the future, if we follow God's commandments, it could potentially happen to us as well. Another interesting quote, and talking about the ability of God to take a soul that is dead, that is stateless, that has no breath, and to redeem that soul, to redeem the person, and to give that person breath back again. And again, in Psalm verse 49, Psalm 49 verse 15, it talks about the redemption of the soul and, and raising someone up, giving someone power over the grave, that sort of mean, that has the idea of someone raising up and, and conquering the fact that they were they were dead and they were breathless. They they were they were not alive anymore. God has the ability to to raise those souls up from the grave again. So as we've seen from from what I've been speaking about tonight, the soul refers to a person or a body, breathing creature. Right? It isn't it isn't talking about when the Bible speaks about a soul, it isn't talking about some something within us that continues to live after our death. When we die, this goes away. So it doesn't refer to any spiritual aspect within a man. Okay, that's not what the Bible is referring to when it's referring to a soul. It's not referring to some supernatural ability. It doesn't refer to the fact that we have something that endures after our physical death. It's specifically talking about one's physical life. Okay, the 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 soul is the the fact that we are a breathing creature. It's the physical life of a person. And that is something relatively intuitive, that when we think about it, 
if an animal can also have a soul and a human can also have a soul, it makes sense that that is a living and a breathing creature. We saw that a soul can have a life cycle, right? A soul is born at some stage. All things are born. A soul begins to breathe. A soul breathes out its last. It expires. Then a soul dies. A soul, a soul goes to the grave and a soul can be raised. And when we're talking about a soul that can raise, we're talking about souls that were made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so if we put this into a context of an animal, an animal is born, animal breathes, an animal breathes out its last, an animal dies, and an animal goes to the grave. Souls that were made in the image and likeness of God, living creatures that were made in the image and likeness of God, also have the ability to be raised again. And that's a very important distinction between the soul of a man and the soul of an animal. They're the same living and breathing creature, but one can be raised and one will not be. And finally, on our last slide, those four main points that we made before. A soul, number one, a soul is a breathing creature. It is something that is breathing in and out, in and out. It's a creature that's alive. It has a body that's capable of life. A soul can't be something that is dead and rotting in the field. That is not a soul. A soul can be a man or a beast, and there's special aspects to, to, to being a man in that image and likeness of God. And a soul can also represent various aspects of a body. So hopefully using that as a, a small introduction to what a soul might be, hopefully that can um, lay down some of what the Bible says a soul might be and hope you look further into the Bible's message and discover some of its truths for yourself. Thank you very much.